welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. My name is Leah Harris. I'm a correspondent with Madden America, and I'm so pleased to welcome today's guest, Mab Segrist. Mab Segrist is Professor Emeritus of Gender and Women's Studies at Connecticut College and the author of Administrations of Lunacy and Memoir of a Race Trader, both from the New Press, a longtime activist in social justice movements and a past fellow at the National Humanities Center. She lives in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to the podcast, Mab. It's great to have you. Glad to be here. I'm really excited about the conversation. Mab, you have written such a sweeping, stunning, anti-racist account of asylum history. Tell us about some of the personal and political motivations that you have for writing this book. I'd love to do that. But thank you very much first for thinking it's sweeping, stunning account because it took me a long time to do. And I really was determined to have a narrative that was kind of epic and could carry along all the details that I'd found in the people and their stories in a way that was a sweeping history. And people are telling me that I have done that, so I'm really happy about that um, because that that was a necessary thing to do. In terms of intertwined personal and political motivations, first was my continuing personal and political preoccupation with white supremacy. Having been born in Alabama in 1949 and grown up in a conservative white family, sometimes that was putting it graciously, in the midst of a civil rights revolution by black people and being very confused about my culture and my family as it was contradicted by the forces that I saw sometime in my front yard, on the steps of my church, in my school, Um, that seemed to be surfacing the violence in the culture in a way that made white people have to think about it. At 13, 14, 15, I think I was really primed to try to be that observer. And it, it was a kind of delayed action, sorting it through, but I really have been sorting it through for the rest of my life. So that's one of the things I brought into it. Uh, and looking at racism always with its complications of misogyny, homophobia, heterosexism, the kind of sex gender systems, capitalism, I and mean, all those forces and vectors. In what was my most notable book, Memoir of a Race Trader, I talked about the relationship between the intimate and the historic uh, and said what therapists would tell us to read history is I had tried to combine my narratives of anti-Klan work with memories of growing up as a child in Alabama and reflections on my family. So I turned there from therapists telling us to read history to the history of therapists or psychiatry and a kind of meta discourse on these questions. I also moved away from Alabama and I moved away from a memoir first person narrative to tell a larger story in which I was mainly located as the voice in the analysis. So that was um, a huge shift for me. It was challenging, but I was very excited by having to be on that steep learning curve. So in, in addition to this childhood preoccupation, use of family material as a point of departure. My great-grandfather on my dad's side had died in Bryce's Hospital, which was the state hospital in Alabama. And it was a family secret until my aunt told me in the 1930s. She said it explained all of our family issues that 
He had seen people about 1901. He was seeing people shooting at him from trees, and then he started to shoot back, and his family felt too threatened by that, so they sent him off to the state hospital, and he died six months later of a skin infection. She Mm -hmm. felt like his having been sent to the loony bin, as she said, really um, shaped her and my father's childhood with a kind of shame that they had a crazy person with quotes around that in the family. So that, I, I was very fascinated by that too. Then Southern literature had always been my refuge and source of information when I was, when I was in college to try to understand the South more. And the, the asylum was in Carson McCullers. It was in Flannery O'Connor who wrote from Milledgeville. Most of her more contentious and some would say grotesque Southern characters and stories, which I came to see had just marched straight out of the asylum into her pages. So those Southern writers got to the politics of the asylum, many of them were queer, um, before social scientists did, before historians did, before Foucault did, and so forth. So these Southern writers really cued me up for that. McCullers, for instance, and member of the wedding, um, in which her little gender-bending white um, child, 13-year-old, was threatened to be dragged off to Milledgeville if she didn't be careful, or in Tennessee Williams at the end of suddenly last summer, um, no, just a minute, Tennessee Williams at the end of Streetcar Named Desire, uh, where Blanche says, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers as she's taken off to Mississippi State Hospital and so forth. So when I started looking into Georgia State Hospital, partly inspired by McCullers and curious to see what was going on then, With a few Google searches over an hour, I found out it had been the largest state hospital in the world in the 1940s and 50s when McCullers was writing about it, had the largest graveyard of disabled people, and was considered, as I read into psychiatric history, American asylum psychiatry writ large, and just a devastating, fascinating story. I feel, oh my gosh, this is really a heck of a story. And so I went and started looking at the archives, and I spent the next 10 years doing that. <clears throat> it was really fascinating to me. And as I looked around, there was only one other history of a Southern asylum, which asked the question of race, Peter McCandless in 1995, but really didn't delve into it. So I decided rather than write on McCullers an article, I really wanted to write that history. So that drew me into it, and it kept me there for much longer than I had intended, partly because of the complexity of understanding the material, gathering material, and then writing it. How does an explicit focus on white supremacy, as you say, sort of looking at this through the lens of race and racism vis-a-vis psychiatry challenge some of these existing asylum histories that, as you say in the book, have been primarily narrated by white men? I feel like an explicit anti-racist focus picks up the narrative and puts it down in an entirely different place, which is completely what I'm trying to do, to reframe the narrative of psychiatry, of asylum psychiatry, which is where psychiatry started in these state hospitals in Europe and in in the United States, where Enlightenment philosophers and practitioners and doctors started to see that if they turned these custodial institutions towards a curative direction, if they treated people well, if they fed them, if they got them away from home, if they let them rebalance, they could make the environment curative. And it was called the moral therapy. Started in Europe, happened in the United States too. But the moral therapy goes very south. And I was tracing the Southern story too. 
Once we turn south to examine how the Southern exception is the national narrative, much can be told. The story of Milledgeville, the Milledgeville Asylum, is compelling to me because to tell the story of psychiatry from the South and from Georgia, from a state as slave-drenched as Georgia is, was... As, as the southern states were, actually. So to tell the story of psychiatry from, these, from a slave-drenched location starting 1842, just as abolition was heating up, you will get a very different view. If you look out from that number of acres from 300 to 2,000 by its end, if that's your location to look out and tell the story, you tell a very different narrative, especially if you are, as you pretty much have to be in Southern history, aware that race is so formative that the conquest of indigenous people was brutal, as was the slave system, and the rebellion against it was heroic and still going on. So I wanted to overlay the history of psychiatry and particular asylums, how they were being constructed, which was usually fairly ahistorical in terms of the larger sweeps of Southern history, what's emerged in American study over the past 50 years. You know, so I wanted to have that history of asylum, and I wanted to overlay it with the history of South, of settler colonialism, how folks from England came here and decided to stay, and then had a revolution to take over control of the continent and, and its and its conquest, that settler colonial process overlaid with psychiatry gave a different kind of narrative. And that's the one that I started to tell. And it's a ve- I think it's a very different tale. Some of the men writing psychiatric history weren't attentive to questions of race or gender. They were looking at institutional histories, um, their role in the history of medicine, um, how psychiatry emerged from that. But there's another set of historians who were the anti-psychiatrists. And I was asked when I was at the National Humanities Center by a colleague, is your book anti-psychiatric? And it took me a day. And then I came back and I said, no, it's anti-racist. There's many things within psychiatry. And I find psychiatrists doing both execrable and really commendable things within this history. But if you ask, how is it anti-racist? You start to ask a different set of questions. It requires a different methodology, a different set of archives and secondary sources. And it comes up with a different set of conclusions. And speaking about source material, I'm wondering if you can... Tell us, in addition to Southern literature and some of the other sources that you've mentioned, uh, where were you able to to glean uh, some of the answers you were looking for in this anti-racist history of the Southern Asylum? Well, I went to the places that historians generally go, the state archives, the local archives, interviews, newspaper accounts, and so forth. And I I had never done this kind of archival research before. And I found it fascinating. And there's this whole experience of the archives where you just enter imaginatively into a different world and it's a detective story and it's a treasure hunt. You find this piece and that piece or you're quilting together stories. I mean, as a formerly as a literary critic, you just have a novel and then you analyze it. But with this material, you have to find the story find the pieces of it, stitch them together in such a way that suggests a pattern and then frame them. And that takes longer, frankly. I mean, historians can spend 15 years on their books. I'm not saying other disciplines don't either, but I spent 15 years on this book because it was such a complicated story and I had set myself to do a 
a kind of ambitious task. So Georgia Archives was the first place I went, the state archives, and I looked up Georgia Asylum or Central State Hospital, and it spit out a bunch of stuff, including annual reports, not all of them, but lots of them, and I copied as many as I could. Um, They also had asylum ledgers, which I had to get permission to use from the Secretary of State when I explained how uh, my research was valuable to the people of Georgia. I would respect confidentiality, and um, I was a legitimate scholar, so I was glad that they agreed with all those things. I was able to get in those ledgers that later another guy came through and transcribed, so um, they were made much more available more easily to people than microfiche did to me. And then there were also a set of case histories, which were the most fascinating, from 1909 to 1924. These case histories had both the context of the medical exams, but also the entry interviews with patients. And I was really electrified by the time I got to this material, because so much more of it had been just the ledgers talking about the patients, and it was very hard to get a patient's voice there. But all of a sudden here in in transcribed typed interviews, you had this give and take. And so you had a range of Georgians, poor mostly, black and white, men and women, answering questions like, are you happy? Are you sad? Most of them were kind of sad to be in this institution, and the thing that made them happy was Jesus. Or do you see visions? Do you talk to God? Well, a lot of them talk to God. It's called prayer, and that's what was getting them through. You know, So it was fascinating to me to see these new medical diagnoses being used to interrogate these folks, and then how it was interpreted in the staff meetings, which were also transcribed and typed. So that really ends the book. Those patient voices and how they're kind of battling sometimes with their doctors who don't really understand so much what they're doing and kind of what that suggests about modernity and psychiatry. So there was that. There was also um, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution has been digitalized from, from 1868 to 1945. So I was able to type in military and asylum when I was working in the Emory Library in Atlanta was there in a fellowship with the James Weldon Johnson Institute, and the computer would just spit out all of these stories, these fascinating stories, because it was a hot topic for Georgians by the turn of the century, um, very sensational topic as it is today, and lots of folks had lots of things to say about it. So that really filled in a lot of the detail. And then one of the librarians suggested I look at Supreme Court cases. I put asylum or insanity into that, And I got another level of narratives as various aspects were getting adjudicated. And then I talked to people all over Georgia who were fascinated by this story because their families in Georgia, like mine had been in Alabama, had been profoundly impacted. In fact, I think by the 50s and 60s, it's fair to say that institutions like these, certainly in Georgia, reached into almost every kinship network in the state. And people knew what it was. They knew it was a terrible place to go. They were afraid to get sent there. And if you threatened them with being dragged off to Milledgeville, they knew they didn't want to do that. They better shape up. So all of those sources were a composite of where the book comes from. Mm, what an incredibly rich journey that you've undertaken over the course of a decade and a half. And we're all much better off for it. So thank you again. Well, thank you. I was hoping you would be. <laughs> <laughs> 
So just to start to kind of go through the history, obviously you're covering a tremendous amount of ground in this book, but I wonder if we can start uh, somewhat even maybe arbitrarily with the traumatic impact of the Civil War. And in your estimation and study, how did this impact land on both white and black people in Georgia of the time? Okay, that's a good place to start. And let me back up a little bit. The asylum was founded in 1842, and it closed down in 2010. So it's like 170 years of Southern insanity. And I do consider Southern insanity to be somewhat of redundancy, given the culture. One of the questions I was asking myself going in is, like, how can a culture that permitted and even promoted lynching decide who, who is sane and who is not? Like, how does that happen? Um, And I was really trying to figure that out, going back as far as I could and also forward. In the earliest 25 years, it was only white people uh, who were committed to the asylum because black people on the plantations and the plantation could just handle every damn thing quite brutally with force when it needed to, whatever. So white people didn't were there until 1867 and then black people joined them from Freedmen's Bureau Hospital. So but the Civil War then was this pivot moment in U.S. history, certainly in Southern history, in Georgia history. A lot of the Civil War has been told, for a century at least, from the generals and the battles, um, this very uh, military history-obsessed version of it. I certainly grew up with that. Robert E. Lee was a saint in Alabama for segregated white children. Jeb Stewart, all these guys, we knew their names, we knew what they did, we knew what their horses' names were, as a matter of fact. Robert E. Lee's horse was named Traveler. You may not know that, but we did. But only recently has history turned to what happened to actually the soldiers. And African-American history has provided such a rich tapestry of what happened to enslaved people and such a model for how to tell Southern history, including the histories of slavery, emancipation, Jim Crow, and so forth. I've been very guided by that, especially W.B. Du Bois, a brilliant, brilliant man. So when you get to the Civil War, only recently have these psychiatric aspects been looked at, and they, they reveal what battle and war does to people. So these recent histories focus on the regular soldier and what happened to that person, that man, Mostly that white men, although black black men were fighting in the Union Army too, and and very not happy, but very determined to do so to fight for freedom they'd wanted for three hundred years. And of course, slavery had always been traumatic, but the Civil War added both an extra layer of hardship for African Americans, but also gave this huge promise of freedom, especially as Northern troops took over more and more Southern territory, and the black people knew it was coming. The South basically got its butt kicked in the Civil War, got really seriously defeated, and was almost about to emancipate slaves in order to get more Confederate troops, which might not have worked. And then Appomattox and the war was ended. But African Americans knew as the war ground to an ob- what was going to be an obvious end, that they could soon fight for their freedom openly, and they would do that. So that's a complicated story, I think, for Black people. For white people... In the South, the Civil War caused, well, for white people in the South and the North, the Civil War caused more casualties than all the other wars in American history put together. Uh, And this is because it was Civil War, so both sides get counted. But it's 600 to 800,000 people who died. 
It was a carnage of world historical proportions, historians have said, with a death rate six times that of World War II. In fact, three times more Confederate men died than unions because it was fought on the grounds of, of the South, and one in five Southern men of military age didn't survive the Civil War. Also, General Sherman's total warfare in the South was made on civilians as well. His march to the sea was scorched earth and just devastating the South as a way to kind of break the military, break both the military and the civilian resistance, which he did. And some of these historians then talk about what actually happened to these soldiers. I mean, Southern soldiers were having to go on force marches over graveled roads. Many of them had no boots by that time. They were exhausted. They go into battle. Saw this pandemonium, people being blown to death around them. They're already exhausted there. And then they sometimes just collapse. When the battle is over, they wake up. Um, their adrenaline's gone, and now they have to bury all the dead friends around them. So it was something that would break both the mind and the body, and some of these historians really trace the way in which it does. The prevailing explanation of insanity, so-called um, madness, during the Civil War was heredity. So if someone experienced a psychic break in this environment, it was considered first that they had bad heredity. We might call it bad genes later, but somehow their family stock was deficient. And if you had this, then you could break in these bad circumstances where somebody with better heredity wouldn't break. But by World War II, the psychiatrist said, no, some situations will break any person, you know, but the Civil War folks didn't have that. So if they broke down, they could be considered a coward. They could be sent to the front of the lines and so forth. I was fascinated with the Civil War because it was a chance to look at trauma and psychic health in the midst of one of the things would, that would be the most intense trauma you could get, which would be in a battlefield like that. I kind of traveled through these different periods of Southern history, but I traveled through that, sometime with the soldiers, sometime with the women at home, to see what happened to them, how it ended up in psychiatric records. And I found records of it during the war and immediately after, but they really dropped out by the turn of the century. By about the time when my great-grandfather started shooting at people he thought were shooting at him from trees, and there was really overwritten of that history, this theory of what we would call mental illness today, lunacy, whatever, being caused by degenerate populations, not by war, not by historical trauma, not by lynching, not by convict lease system for black people, not by all these stresses of history that certainly kick off certain kind of biological manifestations, they weren't caused by that. And because the psychiatric records didn't really carry over the experiences of the war, it was possible to reconstruct these narratives about vulnerable populations, men, women, immigrants, Black people, poor people, into the eugenics movement. And now there's this battle across psychiatry, 19th, 20th century, between those doctors, superintendents, doctors, who see a mainly biomedical model, which is kind of the body itself um, and narratives about it and its experiences, but really outside of history, and those who want to look at what happens to the body and the mind in the context of what was called sociocultural variation by one set of psych uh, psychologists um, protesting the latest DSM. So it's this psychosocial variation, this 
environment, this context, this history where the bodies and the mind are also located and the mind's in the body. I mean, the mind's part of the body and the body's part of an environment and it's part of history. I am arguing as hardly as I can that you have to really understand that whole history to see what happens to the body-mind in this period and in this country. And that is, I think, the corrective or one of the many correctives that you're able to offer, you know, in this book. But to also show, too, that like what happens to black people affects white people. By the turn of the 20th century, the elites who are promulgating eugenics, they hate poor white people, too. You know, they want elite, fit white families like theirs, who were starting to make massive fortunes, the robber barons, and control commerce in the 20th century. Those people should be reproducing. And all these other folks are just kind of problems and failures. And so what do we do with them if they're inherently defective, if they're inherently degenerative as a people, not because all these different things have happened to them and they've been on the downside of this history, these other people have been on the upside of, then what are you going to do with them? Well, we need to figure out how they don't reproduce again. How do we like stop their reproduction? And sterilization, surgical sterilization became the solution to that in the 1930s. How did uh, Kreplinian thought, this racial hygiene, eugenic movement, how did it influence and impact how asylum care was practiced in Georgia, uh, you know, looking at this period of the late 19th century into the 20th century? One of the most fascinating aspects of this to me is how the categories shaped by a man named Emil Krafelin in Germany, who was a doctor working in the German system of clinics and, and, and research uh, universities, um, framed mental illness as a set of diagnostic categories. Many folks that he was in, in conversation with in Germany, other professionals were doing similar things, but his set of categories, uh, which really elevated what he called schizophrenia, dementia praecox, and manic depression is the two major psychoses, what we call today, um, became codified in textbooks that he wrote and rewrote and rewrote, and then came over to this country. And they emerged at a period where this moral therapy that the asylum had been imagined to bring about was breaking down in face of overpopulation. The moral therapy would have been great with 300 or 400 people, so as practitioners thought. By the turn of the century, you have 3,000. I mean, you have many, many more people being sent to these public institutions by folks at home or their counties, whatever the, whatever the administrative unit was, that could ever be handled in any kind of moral therapy way. So the main thing that Krapelin did was to categorize and classify what he saw as these symptoms into illnesses that had certain trajectories and then write them up. So manic depression, schizophrenia came to the fore. One issue, though, was that in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, they moved into a period of therapeutic pessimism because there was really no cure that they had found. So the main thing they could do was categorize and institutionalize. So Krafelin's categories came out of that as well. Um, so when they come to Georgia, you have had, before 1910, in the annual reports, cause of insanity was the question. It would be fell off a horse, had a fever. Women had various menstrual difficulties, ate a peach kernel, one idiosyncratic one, lost a job, 
wife or husband died, those kind of compilations of something that might have happened medically, something that was in the environment or whatever. My favorite one in 1908 was drank too much Coca-Cola, um, which I have had to be careful about myself, you know. So so you have this shift from such a set of categories to is it manic depressive, is it schizophrenic, and you have these doctors in these case histories trying to struggle between the two and half the time not deciding. Well, maybe it's this, maybe it's the other. And they really didn't have to decide in those case histories where they actually where, that actually contained the summary of their decisions, the verbatim conversations that they had. They didn't have to decide because there was no treatment anyway. So people would be in there for their lifetime sometimes. Sometimes they'd be sent back home, but a lot of people were there for the lifetime with no treatment and with a diagnostic system that mainly just justified the reason they were committed. So... So to trace that shift into a more scientific nomenclature at a time where the asylum was very much turning increasingly into not only just a custodial, but a very punitive institution um, that was starting to terrify everybody in, in the state of Georgia or across these states. Nobody wanted to have to be sent there because it had be- very bad reputations. And so to follow those ideas through the various diagnostic and statistical manuals up until dsm Five was part of that process. How did those Krapelian diagnoses relate to what we understand today, mostly through the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals? First one in 1952, the fifth edition in 2013. The early DSMs, the first two, were heavily influenced by psychoanalysis, which is what Freudian doctors brought to the United States, had experimented with in Europe, and really was dominant in American psychiatry for a couple of decades. But by the 1970s, dsm 3 there was a turn back to biological uh, psychiatry, to how the brain was constituted, how it worked, how various diseases and symptoms might occur from various kind of brain functions that were happening in the body. But if that was mainly this biomedical model that wasn't embedded in history and sociocultural variation, then it could have the same dangers and damages as it had in the 19th century. So some of that was struggled out, as I understand it, and have seen in the psychiatric records in the profession into the, into the 21st century. This tension between the biomedical model outside of history or sociocultural variation and the model that takes into account community environment history in terms of like a person's mental and psychic states, this tension played through two centuries and it played through the DSMs too. I came into a realization of that discussion when a colleague in psychiatry gave to me what was called an open letter to DSM-5. It was around 2013 when it was going to come out. And it's from humanistic psychologists across all of these professions who were really protesting DSM-5, as many people did, including the editor of DSM-4, because of these, of these issues. There was a lowered threshold of diagnoses that created false epidemics that targeted vulnerable populations. There was too much reliance just on biomedical model and not on sociocultural variation. There was a return to deviance. There were all of these things that had marked the worst in psychiatry and been battled within psychiatry for more community-based, more historically nuanced, all of these forces there. And in fact, what the letter to DSM-5 called for is a rethinking of psychiatry and human suffering basically from the ground up. 
And I was very encouraged to see such a broad call for rethinking because it really was tracking onto what I was finding in these archives too. And I felt like, well, if there are professionals in the field who seem the humanistic ones, which I think is a good thing to be human, to be humanistic, to be pro-human, if these folks are lining up this way, and if you want to rethink psychiatry from the ground up, then here's some ground to think of it from. This ground in Georgia that I've been tracing so much could give some insight into what does happen when you look at human variation in history and culture, uh, and what happens when you don't is a kind of object lesson there. So as I've gone along, I feel like I have lined up with professionals in the field who are already making these battles. And so I feel more confident that archives and the voices I have found within Georgia have a broader story to tell to the nation from inside an asylum, an iconic asylum, uh, the largest asylum in various places, notorious asylum, about what can happen when these balances go awry. Such an ongoing lesson for us all that, that continues to play out. One of the sort of historical markers that you touch on in this book, so you know, moving very rapidly through uh, the 20th century, uh, is looking at the significance of the 1999 Olmstead versus LC uh, decision, a landmark uh, Supreme Court decision. Uh, and and you make quite a definitive statement in your book about Olmstead is that it sounded the beginning of the end of of the institution that you document throughout right. the book. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about Olmstead and why. It's so significant and continues to be so significant in this debate. Olmstead came out of Georgia. <laughs> um, it came out of Atlanta Legal Aid and the very brave and valiant advocacy for themselves by Lois Curtis and Elaine Wilson, two Georgia women who had spent their lives in and out of Georgia's psychiatric facilities and maybe sometime their jails. And Lois called Atlanta Legal Aid for help. And the lawyers there, led by Sue Jamison, applied the new Americans with Disabilities Act to the situation that was rampant across Georgia state psychiatric facilities at that point to say that it was against patients' rights to be involuntarily committed and held against their will, that the segregation and congregation of disabled people, both cognitively disabled people and people believed to be mentally ill, to take them out of the communities was a violation of their rights and that they deserved treatment as near to home, if not in their homes, as they could, as was feasible by the budget, which is always a big question. But it was the victory of a a set of abolitionists who had been working to, to abolish the asylum in its worst kind of manifestations for 50 or more years. So Olmsted was really a high watermark of rights for disabled people, rights for mentally ill people or those people diagnosed and treated as if they were right for cognitively disabled people. You can't just put us away in an institution far from home where things can be done to us for better and worse and nobody be accountable for it. You know, we get to go home, we get to be close to home. You can't just you can't just shut us away anymore. Given what you know about Milledgeville and the, the history of asylum care in general, what do you see as the uses and the abuses of this 
historical fact, right, of trans institutionalization, mm-hmm. uh, jails taking jails and prisons taking the place of mental institutions. Uh, this can sometimes be used to justify the expansion of involuntary care, or even sometimes uh, re-incentivizing, right, institutional care, or uh, right. calls to rebuild the asylum, literally. Right, right. So what are your thoughts on how this narrative is used and abused, you know, looking from right. our standpoint of, of the year 2020? First, let me say I'm not a professional in this, and I have never been myself committed to an asylum. I've never been diagnosed with a psychiatric category. So I'm writing this not having had that lived experience, and I very much respect the point of view of the people who have, and I've tried to incorporate that as much as I could in my narrative. One of the useful paradigms for three phases of psychiatric history that had to do with asylums and not was the first is institutionalization, which was the founding of the asylums, very often state asylums. You get a very different treatment in private asylums that are more expensive for more wealthy people, but it was institutionalization. And then a process of deinstitutionalization that happened in the 50s and the 60s and turned out, I think, tragically, uh, as tragic as the asylums had turned out. It was motivated because the asylums themselves had become derelict places. The end of World War II opened concentration camps in Europe and showed their terrible effects. But people could make a parallel to what had happened in these state hospitals and the people in them when they had been constrained that way. People were also somewhat more attuned to the dangers of ideologies against disability because Hitler's first set of targets were disabled people and his in the ACT and T4 program in 1939, which took all the lists that the eugenics folks had assembled of folks in state hospitals and the various forms of disability and mental illness and asylums, and then took them to the gas chambers. And that was the first time that had been done. It was also the first part of Hitler's extermination was the only one that had really had a lot of pushback um, from German people. But a lot of disabled people got killed in those institutions. And all of that history finally kind of came out in the wash post-World War II. And so people knew that eugenics had not been a good thing, that these institutions in Germany were terrible things. And there were certain kind of reverberations about how we treated, number one, both Black people in the South, if we're claiming to be a democracy, but also the mentally ill if we look at the history across these institutions, they are really what one journalist called the shame of the states. And this interior story of the institutions in the United States had happened because there were 3,000 conscientious objectors who didn't want to go to World War II and went into state mental hospitals, many of them working as orderlies in the most so-called menial positions with the most contact with patients. And they really revolutionized this work because they brought kindness and spiritual practices and political beliefs and consciousness into it, began to reshape understandings of mental illness, to shape public educational programs on mental health and mental illness, and also to document the abuses in these institutions. So by the time the war was over, you had this internal evidence and you had this climate of human rights. Universal Declaration of Human Rights is passed in, in 1948. You had a different climate there. 
So people knew that the institutions had failed, number one. And then it seemed that medications had come along. Thorazine was the first one that was purported to be this miracle drug by psychiatric journals. It turned out not to be quite so miraculous. It turned out to have a lot of side effects. But before some of that played out, John Kennedy was inspired by the new miracle drugs and and really put forth a new vision for mental health that would be deinstitutionalization, getting people out of these asylums to community care. But he also thought that there should be community health clinics all across the country. So when people came out of these asylums, they came into their communities and they had care there. Their families were helped. They were helped. It would happen. Well, many of those institutions didn't get off the ground and many of the ones that did continued not to be funded. So the community care that was supposed to be there got displaced by the budget cuts that happened under Ronald Reagan, the austerity that cut social programs and fed the military, so that people came home to not enough help. And they ended up in this period, third period of trans-institutionalization, where they kind of bounced around from the hospital or clinics, psychiatric clinics, to jails, to under bridges, on their relatives' sofas, or sometimes getting shot in confrontations with police. That was a tragic situation, and it was made tragic because communities were never given the funds to do the kind of work at home that the state hospital was supposed to have done in a place like Milledgeville or Bryce's or whatever. It was underfunding health and human services. It was overfunding the police. You know, So how all of that came together, I think, points to a continuing failure of politicians who have this point of view to really pay for human needs. And when we don't do that, we get the results of that. I think that the call to return to the asylum is a huge red flag that this is a resurgence of the most regressive forces in 200, if not 400 years of United States history. Certainly 200 years of psychiatric U.S. history and slaves first came 400 years ago. It is the most regressive set of policies. And we haven't broken those policies. It's what I call the afterlives of slavery because we haven't broken white supremacy. It just keeps reinventing itself. So we have the first reconstruction, the second reconstruction, and now it's mass incarceration. That's a new Jim Crow and we incarcerate more people than any other advanced industrial country. It's just obscene. We've gone from 300,000 prisoners in 1980 to 2.3 million prisoners in 2010. So that when you have that kind of investment in a system of incarceration, a kind of gulag system, then psychiatric beds kind of got eaten up in that. And the asylum was intimately linked to that. So if you're going so-called back to the asylum, you're really just keeping it embedded in a prison system, which does not do any person any good and certainly does not do people prescribed with mental illnesses good to be treated in prisons. And the most eloquent testimony to this is the National Sheriff's Association or individual sheriffs who know they are not set up to treat mentally ill people. They're doing something really different, and there's all all sorts of like negative repercussions on those people who are treated inside jails and prisons because they're just not set up for it. So how in the hell do we get in this situation? Why is it as tragic 60 years later as it was before they deinstitutionalized? How do we keep ending in a tragedy for this question? You have to think it's it's not accidental. There's a set of really bad ideas, like enslaving people, lynching people, (laughs) 
sterilizing people. I mean, there's a history of these ideas, and we have not broken their hold. We have shifted away from them. We have alternative policies, but we are still in a life and death battle over how to constitute our society, what to pay for, what to not, what the role of the state is, how capitalism shapes us, all of these narratives. We're in a battle to the death on all these questions, and the psychiatric piece is up in it. Um, I have one more question that I think you really started to answer, but I just wanted to see if you had more that you wanted to share. And really just around that, that question that you started off with. Mm-hmm. How does a state that conquered Native peoples, innovated and administrated the system of chattel slavery for Africans, encouraged or refused to stop the atrocities of lynching and develop Jim Crow, how could that state, be it Georgia or the United States, decide who was and was not sane? So again, as you said, it's continuing to morph and change. So given all of that, do you think that the state should still have that right to decide today? depends on what state it is. If you're in a state and a national system that's promoted all of these things of slavery and Jim Crow and whatever, then that state is not going to be very trustworthy. But if there's an opposition movement in there that is that has fought for abolition, that has passed the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, that has battled Jim Crow, that has repassed civil rights bills, that continues to struggle in these ways for a more just country, you know, there's this battle in this country for who actually controls the power of the state. And there are models for a more humane kind of welfare state. Some people would say they make people too dependent, but this is a culture so extreme from that, where people are so vulnerable, they have so few protections from anywhere anymore. So what state is it? You know, and the state that's being controlled now over the past three or four years since the past election, I don't, I don't trust them any further than I can throw them. And I, and I wouldn't get near enough to try to throw them. You know, like <clears throat> the people in charge of the state now <laughs> who consider it the deep state and are trying to kind of dissolve it so God knows what it leaves us, except vulnerable to everything. You know, those people, I so don't trust them. It's hard to find the words to express how much I don't. But there are other folks who haven't given up on a state that can be more humane or who are working at local levels with with city councils with commissions with state legislatures and it's it's there's a huge division in the country between kind of red and blue you might say I don't I don't think it's exactly like that but we're still fighting all this stuff out I would not give up on a state that knows how to manage things and knows how to manage things for disabled people, who knows how to manage things for people who are working on questions of of mental health there. Mab, unfortunately, having only scratched the surface of what is contained in your incredible book, we will have to leave it here. But I do encourage the listeners to check out this incredible history that you have written for themselves. Thank you so, so much again, Mab, for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.